Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University and by BBC Northeast and Cumbria. My name's Ian Wiley and the focus of this podcast episode is journalist persona on social media. Thanks to social media, mostly Twitter it should be said, Journalists, who often were not more than a name or initials under a news story or a feature, have now become household names with whom it's easy to communicate and interact. Social media offers journalists the opportunity to attract an audience and become news and opinion hubs. For example, our guests today have more than a quarter of a million Twitter followers between them. That's the population of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. It's twice the circulation of a newspaper like The Guardian. Social media has been a big driver in the increasing individualization of journalism, where journalists spend as much, if not more time, building their own social media brands rather than those of the media organizations who pay them. And thanks to social media, the celebrity sphere has expanded to include not just musicians, artists, royals and politicians, but also actors from the media sector itself, celebrified journalists from Laura Kunzberg to Piers Morgan. But we know too that social media can be a bit of a parallel universe, a wild west of trolls and haters, where greater visibility online can also bring vitriolic attacks, slander and misrepresentation. Twitter may be more than 10 years old, but it still feels that we're only at the beginning of understanding the impact that social media is having on the world of journalism. So in this episode, we'll hear a discussion between journalists and academics who have some real insight into the power of social media and who are going to help us get a better feel for its impact on journalism. Ash Sarkar is senior editor at Novara Media, a contributor to The Guardian and Independent, and a regular commentator on politics and society on BBC Question Time, Newsnight, and Have I Got News For You. Susie Boniface is a journalist and author who uses the pseudonym Fleet Street Fox in her Daily Mirror column and on Twitter. Chris Stokel-Walker is a journalist and author of a new book, YouTubers, which charts the rise of influencers and explores their personas. And Dr Bethany Usher is a former Fleet Street reporter whose research focuses on persona, politics and the press in mainstream and social media. I begin the conversation asking our panel to describe their journey and history with social media. Chris Stokel-Walker kicks off our discussion. I think I started on Twitter, which is the main... Uh, social platform that I use probably in sort of late 2007-ish and I used it initially as a kind of a networking tool which is still what I use it I guess primarily for um, in terms of it's a way to broadcast my brand as a journalist um, to kind of show off my works and then to source stories as well so you know lots of interviews that I do I will get from you know Twitter searches and things like that of people who are talking about stories so I don't think my use of Twitter has changed that much I've probably got a bit gobbier um, as I felt more comfortable everyone on Twitter has exactly <laughs> exactly That's we've all become awful haven't we but I <laughs> I am um, I think that I've, I've started using it in a slightly different way as I've built up an expertise in a certain area and you kind of transform from being a, this is probably something we can come on and discuss later, from being just like a journalist and a news consumer and someone who engages 
in that area <coughs> to actually being sort of partly a commentator on your own little niche. So the way that I use it has kind of changed a little bit, but predominantly I'm still <coughs> just sharing stories, finding case studies and stories, and then broadcasting stuff out there. And has it always been professional use? I mean, was it ever, uh, or at the beginning, was it just a... No, I think a it personal was, angle to it all. I think it was always professional, largely because. So I'm thirty now. So when I first started on social media, it was Facebook or MySpace was the kind of friendship one, MySpace. showing my age. Yeah. And then now, you know, Facebook has died, and Ooh. like has has definitely, and like many people, I kind of have migrated <coughs> off those platforms to like <laughs> offline discussion. So, well, offline. Private discussions, so things like WhatsApp or Instagram and the direct messaging of those sorts of things, mm. which is obviously an issue uh, that a lot of tech CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg are saying is going to be the future, is that we kind of go from this big public broadcast medium to very private group chats, which has its own issues with building up a brand as a journalist or an influencer, and also in terms of just fake news and things being shared broader, quicker, faster, scarier. Okay, Chris, thank you. Susie, uh, do you remember your first tweet? Um, I was, Facebook was born in 2004 and Twitter was 2006, I think. And I started, I was a news reporter and I started writing an online anonymous blog in 2009. And uh, it was a story that I couldn't, I had to be anonymous because I was a news reporter and you can't put yourself in the middle of any stories. You can't be part of the story you are. It has to be entirely anonymous, apart from the byline, which no one but your mother cares about. Um, and it was a story about my personal life. It's a story about the end of my marriage and my divorce uh, from a fellow journalist and his taking up with another journalist who was on the large bone side uh, and how I got arrested and everything else, all part of the completely crazy bonkers stuff. And it was a story that was so mental that um, I thought no one would ever believe it. And I had to actually start writing it down. So in order to write it down, I had to be anonymous and I had to do it online. And I also was a bit bored and tired and fed up at that point of being a newspaper reporter. It's the kind of job where I had heard lots of stories about people uh, dying in, the, in their car on a doorstep at the age of 54. And I knew that was... That was going to be me one day with a scotch egg in one hand and a <laughs> bottle of whiskey in the other. And, you know, the contact coming out to knock on the car window to see if I was okay. And, <gasps> and that side. So I wanted to do something different and I wanted to be a columnist because the one thing you have as a reporter, what you don't have as a reporter, sorry, is a voice. You don't have a right to express an opinion. You have to be all things to all people and therefore you are, you have to be like the American newspaper industry almost. You just have to be very bland to everybody. And being able to write about what was happening in my personal life and throw in some anecdotes about journalism and how we were being mistreated uh, generally by the world uh, historically and that all happened about a year before the phone hacking scandal broke so then I found myself at the crest of this anti-tabloid wave with a slight following on social media I was marketing my blog through Facebook at the time um, and then it just kind of all snowballed from that uh, and in about 2012 <laughs> Uh, I was able to take redundancy and go, okay, I think this can be my new way of working. And then the book came out a year later, and then it's sort of, I'm now a commentator or a columnist, or whatever you want to call it, and I don't do much reporting anymore. And 
people do know who I am, which is very weird and I can't get over it because I've had 25 years of being a reporter, <laughs> being able to sneak around and just hide and stand unobtrusively in the back of rooms and it's not quite as easy as it was. So without social media, how much of that w- would have been possible? None, pretty much. I mean, I could have done an online blog, but I, I only wanted a little bijou following because I wanted to get a book out. I didn't really want to do anything else. I wanted to prove to publishers that it was readable and sellable. Uh, and I did that and I took that blog down. Um, but because I found I had a voice and I wanted to express it, I kept on tweeting. I did a news blog. I was trying to convince my editor, who was like one of the last people to realise I was Fleet Street Fox, this strange thing. <laughs> and the trouble is, uh, the trouble is, she was she she was probably one of the last people as well in the in the Mirror Group to realise that social media and stuff was a news source and a thing that you could yeah. benefit from. I think she saw it more as a risk than an opportunity. And so there I was uh, in a in a in a newsroom where most people knew I had one foot half out the door, but I had been there for ten fifteen years. I was one of the more senior journalists. I was relied upon to do some of the the harder work. Uh, and I'd be busy tweeting opinion about stuff, which you're not supposed to do because you're not really part of the story. And the editor, bless her, somehow she went and got herself a Twitter uh, account, which no one could find. And she followed everybody in the office. And you just live in fear that there'd be a phone call from the desk saying, Tina's sin, what you've just... Could you take it down? <laughs> and we were all going, going, who's following you? Who's following me? Ah, trying to track her down so we could all block her. And <laughs> she actually, she, she, did, she was beyond us. She was doing something too magic that we couldn't fix. Um, and so there was a, a period where you have to, I had to walk a, a bit of a line where you know, on a corporate basis you have to tweet what's on message. And bearing in mind there was phone hacking going on and I was a blogging anonymous tabloid journalist. I was getting a lot of, questions about it um and you have to tell that corporate line you also have to do the stories you need to do to get paid and to go to work every day and not get fired and give them your full attention um and at the same time i wanted to continue building this online following of me as someone with opinions that are worth listening to it's very difficult it's a bit of a juggling didn't work all the time quite often screwed up but uh it was interesting and i suppose i started uh, using social media, as Chris was saying, a different way to how I use it now. It was um, it was a shop window to try and advertise what I had to offer, and it's now a shop window in that I'm still pumping out my stories and my copy through it, my links, my stories. Uh, I campaigned for the nuclear test veterans, the guys who are at atomic tests in the 50s, and we managed to get a, quite a strong medal campaign going, in part because of social media. Um, and... I use it as well to find other journalists and other stories and see what people are trending and therefore what people are talking about and what I should therefore be writing about that day. I like to try and write about the big story that everyone's going to want. I've got to have to learn about this today. I have to know about how that picture was taken of Boris Johnson, whatever it might be. That's the thing I want to, to have some, be informed about and have some facts on that I can express my own opinions at home to my mates or wherever. And so the best way to try and see what that might be is to be on Twitter, be on Facebook, uh, and just throw a few comments out in the morning, tweet a few stories out and see what hooks and what doesn't. So it's, it's still a shop window, but I'm, I'm lucky in that I've built it in the first place to be about me, and so therefore it can still be about me to some extent now. But I've also got responsibilities to an audience that I've built over that time who expect certain things from me. They expect a sort of a mirror brand sort of attitude towards things. 
they expect um, a slightly left-wing attitude. If I write anything that's ever even slightly pro-Tory, or even anti-Jamie Corbyn, I should say, I'm accused of being a Nazi. It's pretty, <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty strong. Um, but you have to, uh, you have a very intimate relationship with your readers on social media. I had an email once from a lady um, who uh, had escaped a domestic abusive situation. And it's something I write about quite a lot because I've got experience of it and I like to write about it where possible. Um, and she said in this email that she meant to write to me after I first wrote about Nigella Lawson and she meant to write to me when I wrote about Justine Collins or she meant to write to me about this time and that time, but she was too frightened that time or she's worried about her kids this time or um, she was in a hostel at that other time and so she couldn't write to me. And now she's got a house and her kids are safe and she's safe and she wanted to write and say thank you because it made a difference to know that someone was there. And the thing is that I had no idea she was there. And if I was writing in a newspaper to her, it would not have had the same resonance for her at all. When you're writing on social media and someone's reading you on their phone, it's really intimate. This is why you have that reaction. When people are abusive or rude to you, it's really hurtful because <laughs> it's right up in your personal space. It's incredibly intimate. You're, you're getting this information, these messages, whatever it might be, uh, when you're on the toilet. We all do it. Um, last, thing, last thing in bed at night, first thing in the morning, you know, in places and at times when you're not reading newspapers or doing other things. So you have a responsibility and there's a trust there and an intimacy, I think, as journalists, a lot of us are not aware of most of the time. If you get something wrong, you take a foot wrong somewhere, the sense of betrayal from your readership is as great. Um, the only thing I can compare it to is local newspapers where I started mm -hmm. out. If you really mm -hmm. cocked up and lost yeah. it locally, if you upset, not just upset the local council, but upset the local community because you took the wrong side community. in an argument, <laughs> that was it. You, as a local newspaper, if you've lost yeah. local, you've lost it, you're dead. Um, and it's a similar thing. If you, if you betray your audience on social media in the same way, it's an instant response and it's permanent. Sorry, I went on for ages. No, that was, that was um, terrific, and that's all we have time for, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Susie. Um, Ash, uh, what's been your history with social media? You're, you're, you don't mind me saying, probably a little bit younger than the rest of the panel, so maybe... I just moisturise really well. You moisturise <laughs> very well. So, um, I mean, has your experience been different or, or something similar? I mean, I, I, I can remember my very first tweet. Uh, and it was, hummus is the mayonnaise of the chickpea world. And then after that, the bad, the bad takes just kept rolling. Um, so, so my interaction with social media is a bit different because it predated my career in anything. I'd just come out of university. I finished my uh, degree in English literature. I got a Twitter account. It was originally just for in-jokes between me, my friends, and my brother. And my Twitter bio is the exact same wording as it was uh, as it was back then, which is why it's so obscene. Because every time I've tried to change it, I've got a text from my best friend saying, why are you climbing down? And I was like, okay. Um, and, the, and the reason why I say this is because there was a sort of parallel political story going on. Because my first year in uni was when the tuition fees trebled and there were occupations all over the country at different universities. And I was at the UCL occupation. That's when um, the sort of new left generation wasn't really looking at political parties felt very betrayed by the liberal democrats betrayed by labor didn't really see a home for, the, for themselves in the greens and there was a real sense of insurgent politics and at the ucl occupation and i'll never forget it there were these uh big circular tables throughout the room 
And at one table, it was people who were doing logistics. Another table, people who were working on um, like how we might hold on to the space. And then there was another table, which was press and communications. Now, bear in mind, at the press and comms table, no one had any experience of doing this stuff at all. Everyone was a student, and they were just working it out as they went along. And I remember going over, and I was like, can I help? And they were like, can you write a press release? And I was like, no. And they were like, do you do English literature at uni? I was like, yep. They were like, you can write a press release, you're fine. And so it just threw you into it, where suddenly you had to learn these skills of how you use social media platforms to communicate for a political cause and also to network, to build a social movement out of nowhere in a very, very short period of time. And then it was a couple of years after that that uh, I started tweeting. Again, it was mostly in-jokes. And um, that Navarra Media, the organisation that uh, I work with, very proud to work with, um, got started as well. Navarra is known for using social media in a particular way, um, for using... Uh, YouTube live streams to do one thing, to use Twitter videos to do another. But what it started out was, was something that was very, very old school. Um, it took its inspiration from uh, Radio Alice, which was the uh, radio station of the autonomous movement in the 1970s in Northern Italy. Um, so you might have heard of Franco Berardi, who was a, a key figure at that time. Uh, and what they did, what James and Aaron, who founded Navarra Media did was, I did what Radio Alice did, which is a radio show which was where the left did its thinking and its organising. It was a culture of irreverence, of self-criticism, of dialogue. It was relentlessly outward-looking. Like those early Navarra shows, you can always hear like the ding of an iPhone as like people are texting in or tweeting in. And it felt kind of closed and close. It felt like, a you know, there weren't that many, you know, even though the sort of um, insurgent movement... Uh, got quite big at one point. There were a tremendous number of libertarian communists up and down the country, so it felt like a small community. And then a few things happen which start snowballing. Um, one is that our social media use just sort of got refined. We worked out what we were doing and how to do it well. So we were able to reach a wider audience. And then the Corbyn moment comes along. And suddenly there are all these people who've been looking for not just their politics but their value system to be reflected in something and also to have space for intellectual curiosity and exploration and and, and they came to Navarra and our personal social media accounts were very very important like in order to uh, keep that traffic going to Navarra because I think what people liked is that we did our thinking in real time and in public I, and I still I still do that. I make an effort if I'm reading and I've, I've read something interesting is taking like a little picture of what it is and tweeting about it or, um, you know, tweeting my thoughts about a book or interesting bits of quotations because I think at, at heart I don't really feel like a journalist. Um, and, and there are various reasons for that. I think I feel more like, and I don't mean this in any lofty sense, I mean it in a jobbing sense, a writer. Um, and it's because I've never... Uh, been able to um, be a dispassionate observer of what it is I'm writing about. And that's probably due to some personal failings, also being an Aries, I think, features in there. <laughs> but I'm quite happy with being excluded from the category of journalist if it means that I'm able to retain anger, disgust, curiosity, joy 
or mourning even in, in my work. Those things are all very, very important to me. I also think one of the reasons why I would exclude myself quite often from the category of journalist is because you need very special things in the newsroom to make it work. You need an adversarial relationship with an editor who's constantly <laughs> saying no to the story until they say yes. Or that's how it should work. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you need, uh, you know, certain, uh, certain skills that, like, you know, reporters nurture and refine over years that, that, that we don't have. And so that's why I'm quite happy to say, like, you know, I'm a writer. And social media, I think, and I'm not sure how it is for you guys, but it's made my writing better because I, I still work in academia. I teach a master's over in Amsterdam. And I had that academic's habit of the longer the sentence, the gooder the sentence is. <laughs> Why use a full stop when five semicolons will do? Um, and, you know, just like semicolons popping up everywhere like a rat, you just like add another clause onto that and that's going to clarify your meaning. Whereas the the... The way in which Twitter forces you into clarity and brevity was so good for my writing. I was just like, okay, I've, I've, I've realised that this is the way to say what it is I mean. And it was a skill that I picked up, one, from doing some terrible tweets until they became good, and also ob observing how others did it. Um, I kind of feel that memes are, are one of the most sophisticated forms of communication that have ever existed. And I'm, I'm not really joking when I say that, because they require such... Um, acculturated reading, right? Each meme is sort of like a signifier that's po mm. pointing to like yeah. you know a network of other memes, and you've you've got mm -hmm. to you've got to understand you've got to understand it in a way that defies verbal expression. And I kind of feel like you know if any if any of my bits of content can have the that sort of um, that quality of a meme, I'll feel really good about myself. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, uh, there's a, there's, I'm going to wrap up my intro. And just then. one very crass question at this point, Ash. Mm -hmm. How do you get to have hundreds of thousands of followers? Um, how do you get to that one point? One high five, I think it's okay. No, I think, it's, I think it was a combination of um, be really honest, be really, really honest. And I try and, I try and keep my, my Twitter voice as close to my real voice as possible. And I'm honest about uncertainty and things that I don't know. I'm honest about uh, what it is I'm thinking at that time. Um, There's an awful lot of people on Twitter doing all those things. Mm -hmm. Pictures of your boobs, maybe. <laughs> um, I, th I also think I got lucky. I also think I got lucky with the way that in which uh, certain interactions with, with legacy media went viral on social media and then it drives traffic back. I think all those things happened, but, but I didn't... I just, I don't think I changed my voice a great deal. I think lots of people follow me and then they get surprised that I'm tweeting about grime so much or I'm tweeting about, um, uh, I don't know, ketamine or something. Like, you know, people get surprised that those things are still there. But I think it's, I think it's important to, to do what Dolly Parton said that people should do, which is, you know, find out who you are and then do it on purpose. Um, and I think that Twitter is a, a, a format that really tests that. Thank you, Ash. Bethany, you don't just tweet, but you've decided to study the, 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 the culture of <laughs> social media and celebrity within that. And yeah. So, I mean, tell us about that journey you've been on from Fleet Street to academia and, and you know, what you find so fascinating about social media. So, I was a MySpacer. So, 2002. 
Um, I joined MySpace, um, and two things always stick, well, three things really stick with me from that MySpace account. I was 22, uh, 21, so I called it Psychedelic Star. Um, I don't have the password now, so I can't delete it, but luckily <laughs> I made it private, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I met, my husband wooed me on it because I met him at a party, and he said, you're in all of my friends, top 12 <laughs> friends on MySpace, but I don't know you, and I went, well, why don't you add me tomorrow? <laughs> and so he did, and then messaged me at work for the next six months when he should have been doing engineering. Um, and then a moment from my new first um, national news editor, who um, so I've tracked down a story on MySpace, a source of a story, and it was a terrible story. It was a Robbie Williams kiss and tell, and the model was in America. And um, I went into my news editor, and I've got this. I've got. I was I've only been there six weeks. Thank you. So I walked in. I've got. I've got um, Robbie Williams' girlfriend. Just said she'll speak to us if we pay her some money for a modelling fee. I know terrible tabloid tales. Um, and they said to me, and my news editor went, "How did you track her down?" And I said, "It was via MySpace." And he said what's this? And I said, it's a social media platform. And he said, try and keep it to yourself. The <laughs> 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 news editor had this idea that if you had a source, they were your source and you should nurture them and keep them close so that you could get more and more stories from them. And he thought I could keep the entire social media network to myself <laughs> as a source of stories. And I remember this moment when I realised the generational gap between everyone else above me and myself and that I was going through this kind of experience and this transition that they weren't going through yet. And there's this thing we talk about in students, the difference between a digital native and a digital migrant. And in the history of the planet, I am always going to be, I'll be the oldest people who digitally migrated. So I remember I grew up without social media, I grew up without digital technology, without mobile phone, and then I, at around 16, 17, migrated onto these things. Whereas the students in the audience are going to always be the first generation of the digital natives, that they will never forget, they will never experience life without digital technology. So finding my way through that has been quite an interesting thing for me. So I've had several versions of self on social media since Psychedelic Star. Um, although she might have been my favourite, actually. <laughs> she might need a resurgence. Um, Facebook, um, which I have a real hate relationship with. Um, I go on when I'm doing research into... Um, at the moment, I'm doing research into political um, campaigning and the interactions between journalists and politicians differences in their Facebook platform and Twitter profiles and how they negotiate that so I'm on it at the moment but um, I've had some really bad experiences on that in during because of professional things but also um, I did a version of self for a digital campaign um, so I'd been doing this research into digital campaigning on social media and I, as a journalist I was like well what can I do with this afterwards like I don't just want to publish this article and that to be the end of all of this stuff I've found out. So I did this, um, it was just after the 2015 general election, which was this kind of dubbed the first social media election. And I took the dynamics that all of the different seven political leaders were using um, and stripped my own social media identity for a while and launched this camp campaign called Childhood Back. So I was a new mother, um, I was watching the horror unfold in Greece in the refugee camps. I wanted to do something about it, I didn't really know what, so I decided to launch this social media campaign that I could go out to Greece and give backpacks. And I thought about it and I thought, well, actually, no one's going to give Bethany Usher, the journalist, any money. 
So I stripped everything back and relaunched as Bethany Usher, the mother. So I have set up a little bot farm with students and graduates at the time, and we all forwarded, and I contacted some of the people that followed me who had huge followings, like Susie, and people that are much bigger followers than I, and asked them to retweet on, and raised some money to go out and do this work, and then we did a broadcast every night from Greece on to regional television up here. And so that was a real experiment in kind of using my journalistic voice and my, my campaigning with skills on social media to experiment with versions of myself that resonated better for different purposes. Um, now I have several versions of myself at once. So I have Twitter, where I'm Bethany Usher, the journalist and the academic, and then I have Instagram, where I'm Bethany Usher, the mother, or the Ushkals, which is my family name, and with my friends and socially. And then I have Facebook, where every time I want to go on, I say something like, you all make me want to vomit, because <laughs> I'm from Sunderland, and everyone's poor Brexit that I grew up with, and every, you know, so I have these kind of moments and then I storm off again in a huff or delete some more of my friends from school um, <coughs> so I have these different versions at once now of social media identities do you not find sorry you you know, I think that's a bit like being a reporter because when you knock on different doors you present a different image of yourself in order to get across that doorstep mm -hmm. and convince that person to trust or like you yeah. I was thinking when I walked up here if I was doing a doorstep in Newcastle I would call it Newcastle of course. I wouldn't be doing the Geordie accent, mm -hmm. but I might have some kind of quip about Rafa Benitez mm -hmm. under my, up my sleeve. Yeah, And I, I, would be, I would call it Newcastle when I was knocking on... Not because I'm trying to imitate... You, have, what, you had stuff in the boot to change into. <laughs> so if I was going to yeah. a council estate yeah. in Sunderland, I yeah. wouldn't rock up in my suit, because only people who rock up in their suits are social workers and the coppers. Exactly. So <laughs> I would have my Ugg boots and my jeans and my thing, and I would tell the people straight away who I was, but it's about breaking down those social barriers and playing the best version of yourself to yeah. get. And it's so much yeah. easier. All you've got to do is change app on your phone exactly. rather than having to change your shoes or something. And I have an anonymous profile as well where I do thrifty tips for motherhood. Just as a sideline. There's, there's, there's not enough space on that <laughs> it's, Instagram, it's Instagram only, that one. And it's, uh, one of my friends figured me out and she was like, that's you, that's your kitchen table. I was like, no. <laughs> So, you <laughs> so are we saying that actually what we do on social media is no different to what we do essentially in the physical space? Is that what we're saying? Because we often hear people say, oh, they're a very different person on, on social media to the person they are in real yes, life. bollocks. Um, the, the, the thing about social media that everyone's forgotten is that, oh, it's all new and it's all exciting, and oh, what do we do, how do we cope, and oh, it's fighting to legislate against it, and we need to be worried about it and stuff. Social media is just human beings being human beings, just slightly quicker. And with people on the other side of the world, right? It's Instagram, it's people painting a picture of their dinner on the cave wall, and the bison is bigger than it was in real life. And this is one I definitely killed with my mate Fred, even though he's not actually talking to me anymore. But I'm, I'm, li I'm leaving the picture on the cave wall to boast about my prowess. And, and Facebook is the dinner party because it's fairly private. It's people from school mm -hmm. who you don't know why you're still talking to them because they're quite racist, <laughs> but you, you, know, you seem to be stuck in this conversation with them. Twitter's like being in a pub and it's lively and thrashing and it's just people who stand up and shout on a table and, oh, I'm standing next to Stephen Fry or whatever. Um, and it, it's social media is just human media. It's just a way of humans talking to each other and it's quicker and it's faster and it's harder and it's slightly more painful than ever before. But it's just 
it's just normal humans doing normal human things, which is fitting in, talking, doing their thinking, communicating about whatever it is they want to communicate with. It's just you're communicating with something on the other side of the planet this time. I, I disagree. I, th- I think that what, what that amplifying something also changes its nature and its effects. And the reason why I say this is because I had a I had a learning the hard way experience on Twitter uh, in 2016. Uh, what happened was is I'd attended a refugees welcome here march um, the day after the Brexit result came through, and there was a woman there called Lauren Southern. Who has anyone heard yes. of her in here? Um, she works for a uh, an organisation called the Rebel Media, which is a sort of uh, alt-right media outlet and um, she after all this happened she uh, went on the generation identity boat which tried to stop migrants from being rescued in the Mediterranean she was wearing a big Union Jack hat trying to get people to get annoyed at her I was telling people I'll ignore her she's there with the camera crew Um, she's just looking for a scuff some very dumb Mm -hmm. anarchists ignored me and knocked her hat off and so I was like ugh I went over and I was like, well, look, like, you've, you've had the confrontation you want, just go home. And she was, like, screaming she'd been assaulted, which didn't happen. Uh, a policewoman came over. Uh, I think I said, like, you've rocked up here with a shit hat and no taste, just leave. Like, you know, you, you came, you're being disingenuous. And then I, like, went and went on the march, uh, had a couple of drinks with my friends afterwards, uh, stayed over at my friend's house, woke up, and my phone had exploded because they'd identified me through my uh, work from Navarra, which I had only been doing for a short amount of time at that point. And it was thousands and thousands of tweets, emails, messages. Um, My work address had been shared. Um, Photos of my baby niece had been uh, photoshopped into pictures of gas chambers. Death threats, rape threats, racist abuse, pictures of burnt corpses. And the reason why I say, like, yes, these are human behaviours, and racism... Um, you know, it, it's one of the, the founding conditions of modernity. It's, not, it's nothing new. It's been around for 400 years. But the, ex, the experience of amplification and what it's like in a subjective sense to, um, to know that that violence is there, because also when it's happening, you can't not look. Even though everyone's advising you, just turn off your laptop, turn off your phone. You can't do it. It's this awful impulse it's like testing your thumb against the blade of a knife and you just can't stop doing it um even though your brain cannot cope with that much violent imagery and it should not cope so i didn't i didn't sleep properly for about two weeks i was like a baby like someone had to be in the room with me otherwise i'd like have these like awful night terrors and that experience isn't just an outlier that's then shaped electoral politics in the intervening years particularly in the United States, particularly in Brazil, in Hungary it's very powerful, and increasingly here as well. The experience of online mobbing has these real-world effects which play on social phenomena which have been there for a very long time, but the ability for it to uh, transcend borders and to be uniquely invasive, I think that's new. I think you're right to some extent, but I think the court, the difference there is the speed at which it's happened to you, the violence with which you felt it's happened to you because it was so quick and it's straight away mm-hmm. and it's all this personal stuff. Um, but the the difference 
is that the people you were talking to were the equivalent of a publishing magnate and you were the equivalent of a publishing magnate because you had social media networks and no, they realised their power and you didn't realise your weakness in the sense of what you had that was open and what they could do and what you could do to them. You're now in a situation where if, if something happened uh, to you, you could almost, I mean, you wouldn't, but you could almost re repeat that and repay that to someone else because you have so many followers, you could encourage a kind of mobbing yourself. Mobbing is a human function. It's what happens. Mm -hmm. If there was no social media in that crowd, there'd have been a, a mob of, of, of however many handful of racist idiots who'd have done something stupid. But you wouldn't have had that massive piling on, which you can't turn off. And I've been in a, a similar situation where you can't turn these things off and you have to keep staring at it. Um, but I can remember instances where people have had the media or a publishing magnate has turned effectively a country, a mob, against some one person and they've had something similar over a long, more drawn-out period of time because people had to rely on the post to get their, their messages across. So, it, yes... It's more violent because it happens quicker and it's right up in your face and it's your personal stuff. And when you're getting letters in the post, you can kind of, it's at arm's length. It's not quite so intimate and they find it more difficult perhaps to find the pictures of your niece, that kind of thing. But it's the same thing happening. But I'm saying the political consequences of it are something that's new. So I'm saying, I'm saying well, that, the, no. that the experience of, of mobbing, the amplification of racist violence has had electoral consequences today which I think don't have other parallels in history. And the interesting thing is that lots of the slogans in the language, they do come from previous electoral campaigns, particularly with Donald Trump. Lots of his language comes from that, you know, strange Lindbergh era. But the ability to uh, mobilise it and have it be an um, electorally effective project, it's relationship with social media is something that's very new and I think it's ha it has new consequences. I think someone said the same thing in 1702 when people started Well this is the really interesting thing, so attacker journalism and cultures of attack is not a new phenomenon, it's that it's um, been going really since the 18th century it's part of the public sphere, if you look at the kind of celebrification of people like Thomas Paine by newspapers and self-celebrification actually, none of, none of this is new, that he would write personalised letters from exile in France when he'd, be, you know, when he'd fled the country and this was part of the public sphere and there was this you know, kind of focused attack by several newspapers and the earliest example of what I call attack journalism that I found is Thomas Paine in The Times. And what I was really interested in when I came across it was the linguistic similarities with the things that, the attack on Ed Miliband. And also, the thing that I was most uncomfortable with that I was schooled in, in tabloid journalism, which is how you, that the news editor just decides that this person, or the newspaper decides that this person is ostracised, they're beyond the pale, and you were all detached <coughs> to basically destroy them. And the person, the poor person, and I, I really wish one day I could meet her and apologise for it, for me was Kerry Katona. So Max Clifford had had a fallout with my newspaper editor. Kerry um, Catron was his client and caught in the midst of it. And basically, they decided they were going to have it. And these linguistic ways of culture and type, this interjection of adjectives in front of words, these kind of, the, Thomas Paine, they suggested he was homosexual. He tries to get being found in the things. He was a hypocrite. And so this is a really long-standing narrative. I think it's the speed and ferocity of it. And what I was interested in when I then subsequently kind of became a victim of an attack in a, in a reverse way, or 
I've kind of had a little bit of an example of both, but um, during that campaign that I was talking about, um, the local newspaper, the Sunderland Echo, where I forged myself as an eight-year-old girl, did a lovely story about me from a record off to Greece. And, of course, there was people from Sunderland who knew me from growing up, or didn't, who just didn't like it. And I, we call it the tall poppy syndrome. It's the worst thing you can do from Sunderland is love yourself. She loves herself. <laughs> she ain't walking down the street. So if you would put your head above the parapet, they're gonna, there is a group that will go for you. And because I'd used my children as part of that narrative of self, they were fair game too. And so, but these weren't people that were distant. These weren't people. These were people who were angry that I was going to help the refugees and felt they could say the most outrageous thing about me and my female child, particularly. And when it got too close to home, in that these people were making serious threats and they lived down the road in Peter Lee, my husband and I got the police involved. And the police said to me, I remember this community police officer coming out, and there was like three or four names, and he said, well, what do you want to happen next? And I said, well, I want you to tell them to stop sending me bloody abuse on Facebook. And, and he said, we're doing this outreach programme where people go and communicate with people, so would you mind sitting down and talking to them? And I was like, oh, okay. My husband was like, no, absolutely not. But I went. Um, and we had this conversation. And it was just quite clear that these were people, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, they were drunk. They were having a conversation about bloody immigrants. They'd seen my article on the Sunderland Echo pop up in their Facebook feed. The disaggregation between that drunken conversation there and the thing that I was doing broke down. And they did it, and most of them were apologetic. One made a donation to the campaign. One, I think, just kind of said whatever he had to do for me to not bring charges, which I chose not to. <coughs> I think that we, what we have is this volume and ferocity and this access that is different to when journalists led the attack. Mm. Now the crowd leads the attack. And there's a lack of nuance as well. You cannot see the person who's talking to you. We're evolved to look at people's body language and to judge them on their hair and their character and their clothes and how they respond to us and to make eye contact and when you don't have all that bit of information coming in around mm -hmm. their comment you can't tell if they're yeah. actually just taking the yeah. mick or if they're pissed yeah. but you know all the times that trolls who've made rape threats to MPs and stuff have ended up in court the, the, the mug shots of them outside the mags court if you saw that person at a bus stop you would not be worried you'd be worried about them but not yourself you know, and I, I always um, say, it's just a bit of a cliche, but on social media, if you're unsure how to react to something, you use the bus stop rules. Would you get upset about this if it was said to you at a bus yeah. stop? Would you say it to someone else if you were stood next to them at a bus stop? Would you call the police if this happened at a bus stop? Would you just get the next bus? And you have to try and remember yeah. that there is a human being who's responsible for all this horrible stuff. And do you have the necessary medical qualifications for dealing with them? Not always. I mean, you can't always... I like to correct their tweets for grammar and punctuation and send it back to them. And there are times that just doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but there are other times you have to sometimes take a deep breath and go, Chris, not my problem. Is this just a uniquely Twitter thing we're talking about here? Because I mean, you've spent a lot of time thinking about another platform, YouTube. Susie just talked about, well, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the issues are because we're not seeing people face to face. Are other platforms such as YouTube just, um, you know, they don't have those same kind of issues or I mean, does, it just, does it just manifest itself in a different way? No, I mean, YouTube is equally a cesspit like Twitter is. So, um, I mean, a part of this, I think, is it, it is kind of goes to Asher's immediacy and amplification thing is we are encouraged, A, to brand ourselves and, and to, to stand out from everyone else. And to do that, we kind of have to be, 
either better and sort of more valiant or worse and more gobby and violent. And then also we are encouraged by the platforms, like you load up Twitter and it says what's on your mind and things like that. And therefore you are encouraged to kind of take a, a tribal stance that I don't think necessarily you were in the past. I think that you could have a newspaper in the case of the 18th century that would communicate to you their thoughts but it then didn't invite back you joining in the mob quite as readily I think so in, in my yeah like I mean YouTube is awful for this and, and YouTube is almost worse because the algorithm kind of pushes you to become even more extreme and to consume even more extreme content so you know there was a, a series of pub bombings in Soho 20 years ago today over sort of successive weekends that targeted the LGBT community. And that guy, when the police went and uh, raided his bedroom, they found you know, <coughs> Nazi flags and things on the wall and copies of you know uh, neo-Nazi newsletters that he had got through the post, which is kind of Susie's idea of you will always get this stuff anyway. But if you are that person transplanted into 2019, you can broadcast that stuff to potentially millions of like-minded individuals in seconds and I think that you can very quickly get swept up as it kind of strips out the nuance this yeah, amplification that kind of uh, evolution of somebody from a, a, an idle thought to a, a horrible thing is much quicker because it happens in the privacy of their own like little personal space whatever it is and there are there have been several high-profile cases recently of paedophile murders where the police have said normally if you see this kind of thing there'd be a period of escalation you'd see some abuse or you know whatever you have a period of crimes leading up to the major crime um so there'll be things where you know other people are aware of things getting worse and dangers developing and becoming concerned and local police officers being involved and so on and so forth and now there isn't there's just bang there's your murder straight off and that's because of various algorithms online that are causing things to escalate quicker and without being noticed but we're, we're kind of encouraged to take a stance on everything like whether it's you know online comments on newspaper websites whether it's social media and reacting to people i mean like i know i've done it like you know for instance i was listening to pm today and evan davis did something that he said yes thank you to someone who was clearly okay. waiting time to try and figure out how to answer his question because they said oh very good question and he just immediately said, yes, thank you. And I was just like, what a tool. <laughs> so then, you know, like I was like, clearly he is not saying that you're actually a good questioner. He is trying to buy time to answer the question. And I didn't think, and I went on Twitter, and I was snarky about it. And I kind of regret it now because... Evan Davis with a single tear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, think, I think he's probably all right. I think that it probably doesn't cross his radar. But that's an example of how we are kind of being conditioned to try and, you know, have hot takes on everything and sometimes <coughs> having a sort of a breathing moment and saying actually when you're pissed in the pub don't call out Bethany and so like one of the things I'm particularly interested in with YouTube because it's it's become known as a platform which the alt-right do very, very well at. And it's because they've got this sort of conveyor belt. We've got the soft edge of it. So that might be Sam Harris, or it might be Ben Shapiro, it might be, uh, what's his name, Thingy Rogan. Oh, Seth. Um, uh, Joe Rogan. Yeah, Joe, Joe Rogan. And then there's Rogan. the sort of, someone else. <laughs> and then there's the sort of um, conveyor belt to like more and more extreme content. And in particular, are some of the more 
marginal extreme figures have because there's such a low uh, cost of entry um, it's really easy to like get a mic which does like relatively good sound like to get like decent lighting mm. it doesn't cost that much anymore set up a desk and have the you know all the stuff which makes you you know you can have the Ben Shapiro set up for not very much money it means you can kind of get conveyor belted onto more and more extreme content is that I'm really interested by the content producers who have been trying to construct a kind of bulwark against it and, 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 a, and a fight back. Um, Navara isn't as good as it should be and that's because we've been sort of trying to learn the format of YouTube, we've sort of been exploring live streams, but there's a group of content producers called BreadTube. They're called BreadTube after the slogan, uh, give us bread but give us roses also. There's one woman in particular called ContraPoints who I think is, is brilliant and I had the pleasure of interviewing her um, a little while ago. And what she does is that she does, yes they're hot takes, but they're also, they're thinky hot takes. So they're like 40 minutes long and it's, and it's relentlessly nuanced. It really defies the expectations of the sort of uh, rigid or moralizing social justice warrior. But it's like a very, very thoughtful, uh, intellectually rigorous take on things, which is also really accessible, really funny. She's sort of um, an expert of, of visual language. And I was like, so, so how did you end up doing this? And she was like, well, I knew that if I wanted my work to have any effect whatsoever, and she had been in the academy and she dropped out, she needed to speak in the language of YouTube. And her, her dexterity at that is something which I find so impressive. Uh, it's kind of, it's, you're smothered by mass and size. And, and I think that's kind of why we see more polarization in this stuff is if you are uh, able to kind of become a celebrity through social media in some way, and then you can monetize that stuff, whether it's on Twitter or YouTube or Instagram or wherever, you you kind of there's another element that enters that dimension which is trying to sacrifice your morals for this sake of <coughs> capitalism, essentially, for like wanting to make money. And so you you kind of then get pushed into doing more extreme stuff. Like nobody wants to watch paint dry on YouTube. I mean, some people do, but like, you, you, and it you could go be for car crashes. Like YouTube listening to bubble wrap. Yeah. Oh, come on! Then. But you go, you go more for the car crash than you would for the paint dry, and and, and so mm. it kind of it spirals, I think. And well, that's it's the this, same it's social this media. old, I question of what came first, the journalist or the tragedy, really, because um, it, it's something that you know uh, there's there's more and more of a demand for opinion, and if you see journalists standing up being a tall poppy having an opinion doing something being part of something everyone else on social media now who forget that they are also publishers cannot do the same as journalists they can be it they can see there they can live stream it they can have an opinion too they can you know they can annoy people and twink them and poke them and everything else and at the same time journalists are responding to this need for opinion by being more opinionated i'm always quite amazed when i see laura kinsberg and john sopel and uh, established good television journalists offering what sounds very like opinion about things. There is a difference between analysis and opinion and, and comment. And it seemed, that didn't used to happen when I was watching the television when I was younger, and it's definitely happening now. And I don't know if it's happening because people want more opinion or if opinion is creeping in and it's, or it's journalist's fault in some way, but there's more of it. And there's a, it's kind of opinion light when the BBC do it or something or Sky, but it's definitely there. And reporters, different to commentators or columnists, reporters should never express an opinion because it's death. You 
fatal to a journalist. But what is a reporter, and that's yeah. the la the difference now, isn't it? Is that the the lines between kind of journalist or reporter and activist and celebrity pundit and social media influencer are blurred, but. Again, that isn't anything, it's not anything new. And if you look at your kind of the regional big figure, W.T. Stead, Victorian journalist, who's your kind of the northeast sort of cultural hero. Um, and he did, he blurred those lines completely and he always used the dynamics of celebrities part of his journalism. So new journalism in the, in the Victorian era. Um, W.T. Stead was a campaigning journalist and activist and a newspaper editor. Um, who um, brought about the end of child prostitution laws in Britain, I hate that word, child prostitution, the, the <coughs> rich paying to rape the children of the poor is better, mm. because I, I think it's a loaded phrase, it, it, puts the, it puts the emphasis on the child too much, uh, completely. Anyway, so he did this campaign where he bought a child against the law, to highlight it, he then um, went to jail for buying the child. He wrote a, the, a series of newspaper articles over the series of months, but he was part of that narrative. His opinion on this and his opinion of the rich was part of the narrative. And so really it goes back to new journalism. And this is the people who first used bylines for the first time. And there's these huge debates in newspapers at the time about how bylines are the end of objectivity in journalism, <laughs> uh, going backwards and forwards. So these dynamics aren't new. What these dynamics are is that the network media environments broaden the complexity of it. We create these, what, I, what someone, a guy called Chris Rojek has called totems. And so you have journalists which are totems around which micro-publics, the public spheres, um, debate. Um, Katie Hopkins. So she's this kind of um, hybrid, a celebrity, and then a celebrity kind of commentator, and then calls herself a journalist now. What is she? And she kind of used these cultures of attack until she was no longer mainstream enough, so I had to go to rebel media because they were the only ones left who would have her. Um, and has to become more and more extreme. But around her is this debate that's going on all of the time. And when people say, is it a good thing or a bad thing, often that's really subjective on your politics. So people think Asha fantastic or the end of journalism in equal measure, depending on where they're coming from. Um, so that's subjectively. Objectively, I think what Chris was saying about the commercial thing of it is, is it and primarily a commercial endeavour? Are you doing these dynamics because you want to make more and more money? Or are you aiming to facilitate public debate and discussion amongst audiences is an important dynamic too. Or, or also option number three, which is you do have an ideological interest in shaping society in a certain way. And I think for me the interesting thing is uh, with the growth of social media facilitated journalism, the growth of new media outlets, which have sort of, um, you know, had real and like tangible effects on legacy outlets. So for example, uh, the launch of the Tribune did for a period of time really pull the New Statesman's coverage to the left and then the sort of you know, counter-revolution from within. And, you know, I think George Eaton is in a basement somewhere, like, you know, found a gag. Um, you know, so these things like have, have had an effect. And this thing about facilitating public debate um, standing up for certain uh, journalistic values has also overlapped with particular forms of social norms which uh, maintain and police the boundaries of who is deemed an acceptable journalist or not and also has a set of ideological interests, assumptions and prejudices as well. And the thing about social media in my view is that it's both intensified some of these dynamics but also exposed that they are at work and at play. Mm. Um, I really love the sort of uh, 
you know, it's every few weeks or so, it's like, here's the thing which all the lobby journalists are getting wound up about now. And you can tell that there's a WhatsApp, a WhatsApp group chat as well, because, <laughs> like, suddenly all the tweets, like, are on this one thing. Um, and, it's, and it's usually something which is an overlap of personal experience and political analysis and just, just something. So, for instance, if someone, you know, and usually it's Owen Jones who's like, lots of people went to private school, that's not very good. <laughs> and then suddenly you have all these journalists going, well, how very dare you? <laughs> because I went, to, I went to private school and I had to eat my own shoes the whole way through. Does that mean I'm middle class? No, you know. And so you sort of, like, you know, get these points where... And it really does also, like, impede, I think... Journalists only like acknowledging that they exist in a bubble when it's they themselves doing it. When it's someone who's perceived as an outsider saying, this is a real bubble, and your coverage and your output reflects the class and social position that you have come from, the assumptions, the prejudices, and the priorities of that, they really hate it. And social media, I think, has has forced these conversations into the light a bit more, but in a way which is also like intensely uh, antagonistic, has a lot of animosity in it. Like, I remember popping up a tweet once saying, uh, you know, it was it was a video which had been circulating for hours and, and no one no one else had said anything. And I was like, why hasn't anyone said anything? An hour and a half later, uh, Sky covers it and then the Sun covers it. And then the lobby, and this is what I mean by there's a group chat, the lobby all at once piled in there were like, see, Ash, it was being covered, you were lying. And I was like, an hour and a half after it. I remember, After it, it? Yeah, I it was, remember, it, yeah, I remember it, watching that play out. And, and like, it's like a drama because I could see, I'd, what, I'd seen your tweet and I think I'd retweeted it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's all this kind of rhetoric about, well, it's over here and it's over here. And you were actually saying, yeah, 11.29, it's in the Telegraph. I tweeted at 9.05, it was that. I, I think it's, I thought I was going mad. So at first, yeah. because it's all these all these blue tick accounts doing it, I climbed down immediately and first went, oh, sorry, I didn't mm-hmm. see. And then I checked the st- timestamps. So I was like, wait, yeah. wait, wait. <laughs> but that's what I mean by like the group think and the, and the sort of interpersonal social dynamics and how that also overlaps with ideology, political interests and... Well, it's and habit it as well, because those journalists are, are often criticised for not reporting something yeah. which the mainstream media has been happily reporting for a long time. Mm-hmm. As soon as someone does it, they go, ah, and they, they, you know, they have mm-hmm. an immediate sensitive response to something. It was immediate. Same. It was two hours after it had already been... Well, no, but when, when, they, when they see the thing, they, mm. they realise what's happened. But... You know the algorithms and the fact that journalists are the ones who are always the ones who are criticised. I mean, I could say to any of the people who tweet me during the average day the same kind of assumptions that I could make about them that you've just described that people make about journalists. I could say, well, because you're from that part of the country, or because you're a male, or because you've got a picture of a motorbike as your Twitter profile handle, or you know, because you cannot spell in this Facebook comment, I'm going to make an assumption about you and how you think and how you vote and where you went to school and all the rest of it. And if I did that, I do it sometimes. But if I made a habit of it and did it seriously, you know, without any sense of irony, I would be criticised as a poor journalist for making assumptions and for treating potential readers and other people badly. When other people do it to us, it's our fault for being part of a bubble. Whether you're in that bubble or not part of that bubble, you're assumed to be part of, you know, the the whole thing. But the difference there is the P word, right? Power. Yes. But... The point I was trying to make poorly was that um, how journalists are, journalists are that tall poppy um, and are expected to behave to a higher standard 
in many ways to you know obey the defamation laws and codes of conduct and other things uh, and yet act in the same way and use the same mediums everyone else is using in a different fashion and they're held to a slightly higher standard and they have that loyalty and you have that trust with your audience which if you betray you have all these problems I think that's what's quite so interesting about how journalists use social media now is that actually by combining like the professional and the personal on mm-hmm. Twitter or something like that by showing that you do stuff during the daytime and then also you're like out at night and have a life it hopefully should give you know the average observer a better idea that you are a rounded human <coughs> who can make mistakes and things like that but I don't think it does because there's that odd kind of blurring of the professional and the private and nobody quite knows where you stand well, I think on it. it depends maybe on the medium a bit because I found on Facebook because you can see everybody else's responses on a post mm. it's more considered so if you if you write a, just a terrible thing or make a terrible cock up everyone can see that you've been told that three times already and they're not going to repeat the same thing to you there won't be a pile on in quite the same <coughs> way you did it on Twitter when no one else can see in quite the same way what everyone else has said it's a little bit more considered on Facebook they know your birthday and people will wish you happy birthday <laughs> and um, you can have more of it you can ask a question on Facebook and get a slightly more sensible answer because it's a slower more thoughtful way of expressing yourself but at the same time there are times and places when Twitter which has got worse of late but it's still sometimes the nice, fascinating little human, nice pit, not cesspit, but you know, the bit above the cesspit, yeah. the pond, the nice human <laughs> pond. It can still do that because it's still fundamentally a bunch of humans doing human things. Thank you very much, panellists. I'm going to pause there and throw it open to our audience. Uh, I mean, some fascinating insights there. But I want to hear, we want to hear your thoughts, your comments, anything that made you think, hang on a minute, that doesn't quite <laughs> fit with my understanding or my experience, uh, or just any, any questions. I mean, what, what, um, Jerry? Uh, when I saw the, the, the name of the event today, it's about uh, influencer. Yes. Uh, I'm always kind of curious about the word influencer. Like, what does that mean? Like, like when, it, when I think the term influencer, I also have, like, you also have like a uh, commercial connotation to the mm. word. Are they selling something, or like, or is like influencers just purely someone who possess the power to influence people, or are they like, like yeah. what, do, what, do, what do you guys take on the whole concept of influencers? Chris, I mean, you, you've, you've covered influencers in, in, your, in your book. Is it is it just are, when we talk about influencers, are we talking just about commercial transactions, people endorsing products, or? Are we influencers on Twitter if we are promoting, endorsing viewpoints? You know, can, you know, is it the same thing? Is it the same yeah. job? I mean, every, yeah, everybody is an influencer because everybody is selling something, whether it's like a commercial transaction for a product or whether it's an idea or, you know, a kind of, I don't know, some unifying goal. Like, you craft your persona to try and make it more attractive for the idea that you're selling, um, whether that's like a over expensive advent calendar or whether it's your you know, your blog or your kind of charity or your campaign, I think. So I don't think that there's, it's always money involved. I think it's, and I think that's the issue is that social media has made us all influencers because we all have to craft our personalities in public. and present our best face, whether it's Bethany's MySpace or 
or you know anything like that. You, you pick everything from the image to the both uh, to the to the background bio. song. Yeah, I used exactly. to do a nice <laughs> yeah. song that was great. What was it? What was your background song? Oh, it changed a lot, but it was a variation of something to do with psychedelic seventies. So it might have been a bit of Mark Love. <laughs> I always liked a bit of Love. <laughs> what was the background song for your Twitter account be now? Oh, that's oh, an interesting oh, one. Don't know. I tried to start a thing of like let's share music videos on Twitter. It spectacularly failed. Oh, but like a Friday, it? like nobody does. It's like no, I'm not no. tweeting your your So I decided the other day I'm sick of all the negative. Let's bring back Dawn of the Age of Aquarius and try and make it a summer of love. <laughs> Twitter weren't having it. Twitter says no. The thing with your question about influences is that. Yes, you're an influencer because you, you influence people with whatever you are, with it, whoever's on Twitter or social media, because other people see it and it influences them to think differently. But influencer, the noun, has this uh, commercial connotation. And journalists, to me, has the con- there is no qualification. It's probably a bad thing to say in a university of people who are doing a degree, but there is no qualification necessary to be a journalist. A degree will not help you be one. It is a state of mind. It's what you do. Um, and it's from what you said earlier on Ash a lot of the stuff that she was talking about and how she had changed and learned sounded a lot like journalism to me um, but a journalist is someone who has uh, fundamentally is someone who has responsibility to their audience as well as their editor perhaps but has a responsibility of some sort somewhere along the line they have some kind of moral contract with what it is they're doing they don't necessarily have to be trained although it's a bloody good idea um, whereas an influencer has one contract and it's with the person who's paying them to do the thing and as, as, as a freelance self-employed journalist who is paid to write things, I don't have a contract to write what they tell me to. I write what I think is right <laughs> and they publish it or they do whatever they want to do. It's, in, it's interesting you say that because um, I'm not going to say which publisher it was in case one month I'm really broken and I need their money again. <laughs> uh, but there is a, um, a very a well-regarded news outlet and um, the reason why I've stopped writing for them is because I realised that it was always the same dynamic, which was I'd get a text from one of two editors who would say, we need this person to not just write about this thing, but here's the line we want you to take. So I'll never forget, like, one morning it was, uh, hi, Ash, hope you're free to write today. We want someone to write an article about how a second referendum will actually bring the country together. And I was like, but I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I, I'm coming around to the idea of a second referendum, but, but fundamentally, I, I, I believe it will be a divisive undertaking. And she's like, "Yeah, we don't want we don't want you to write that. Like, can can you write this one saying it will bring the country together?" And I realised that what was happening was that I was being treated like an influencer. Is that this editorial clock, like, okay, you've got like 159,000 followers, whatever it is, so you're going to get the clicks. We've because they've got a very very sophisticated back end and they can see how long someone stays with one of your articles. Mm-hmm. Like you've got a very good retention rate, mm-hmm. and this is the political line that, as you know, a bunch of editors, we want some, we want out there. But we it can't be seen to be coming from us. We want someone who uh, is both seen to be independent of us and also is independent in the fact that you know we don't pay you enough to live. Um, I just think that's fascinating that we think that is influencing where that's just a desk. Yeah. And the the desk will decide always. As a reporter, particularly where you have no right to your opinion, they are deciding what the dynamics of your day or what story you're going to do and also of reframing it the headline thing mm. where we write a story and then they put a headline on it that frames it and then the source is angry with it every journalist has mm. got this story 
So that's yeah. the, the benefit and the cost of being on, of using social media is that um, newspapers acting like they have always done, which is we want someone to write that, you write this now, kind of thing, uh, and nothing is written there. And the and the benefit of that is you can say, well, no. And the cost is because your audience, your loyalty, mm-hmm. your the thing that you think is important would react badly to it because you would be being dishonest. Mm-hmm. And so you say, no, the price of me doing that is too great. Um, a few years ago, perhaps journalists who were asked to write an opinion piece they didn't agree with would go, ah, oh, mm-hmm. and have to do it because it didn't matter any, anything very much. <coughs> but now, and I've had the same thing, the same conversations with editors and gone, no, I'm not going to write that. I'd rather turn the money down, thank you very much. Um, which I never got to say when I was a, a staff reporter. <laughs> and part of the change, I think, is the fact the way we're changing in general, the way we're working, more and more people are freelance, more and more people are doing their own thing and they're being employed for different reasons than they used to be employed. And so you have the opportunity now more to say, to be employed for, Ash is employed because she's Ash, mm-hmm. not because she is the mouthpiece for whoever. I'm employed because I'm me and so on and so forth. You you have the ability to say, this is me, if you don't like it, you can foxtrot Oscar. And this, you know, in that way, you're an influencer, I suppose, mm-hmm. because you are, you are what you are, you are your own brand. But at the same time, you have the responsibility that a journalist has to your audience of some kind, and whether it's, it's online or... between authenticity and authority, which is that, uh, that you know, journalistic authority or your authenticity as a self-render and influencer and how those dynamics shape what you do. And, and Susie's absolutely right, is that it is more damaging to so Ash's authority as a political... I'm commenting on you, sorry, but... In, <laughs> I'm so commenting on authority. <laughs> but authority as a political activist, as a, as a journalist of things, is also linked to her, the belief in the audience that she's not authentically who she is. So if she does, if you were to write that piece that challenges or undermines that authenticity, it also now undermines your authority too. Mm. And that's a new dynamic that journalists and negotiate with, from in the past, where you were the authoritative figure, the gatekeeper, or your news editor was the gatekeeper and decided what was getting through the gates. That's perhaps the beauty of social media for journalism, is that now you can decide what gets into yeah, the gates through yourself. Now we're all publishers, yeah. and that's, it's down to us now. And one of the things I remember in 2012, or 20, yes, 2013, when um, my book came out and I had a, a piece on that, my identity had been revealed um, a couple of times, leaked, but quietly, but no one really paid too much attention. Um, and I managed to get path through it. And then uh, I had a piece on the front page of the T2 supplement uh, with a little excerpt from the book, and it was my picture for the first time, pictured in a bell pub in Fleet Street, and I uh, got a little bit of a thing to write about why I had done the blog and the little excerpt from the book. And I was terrified, because for um, by that point, for almost four years, I'd been writing anonymously online under this pseudonym, which uh, implied I was some kind of spokesman for Fleet Street, that I had been asked for my opinion about things like phone hacking. And I had dragged all these people along with me and convinced them to listen to me and read me, and I'd managed to get a book deal. And I felt, because I had always had someone else be that gatekeeper, that I was a fraud, and I was this worthless reporter whose opinion and whose, whose, whose uh, work was never good enough to do better next time, Boniface. Mm-hmm. And so when the, the paper dropped that night, and I uh, messaged uh, Hendo, who does the papers drop every night, and I said, can you just send me the times when it went? Because I knew that the T2 would have a little strip across the front and it had my picture on it. And then it came out, and I, I was expecting people to go, well, you're not a fox, or what are you talking about? You were just some hack at wherever you were working. And I, what I got was a load of people going, oh, hi. 
oh, that's you. It's nice to put a face to the name. And actually, there wasn't this huge sort of bite back, this um, reaction that I was expecting. It was just a nice kind of human interaction, like a, you know, handshake, row of high fives. It was nice. It was pleasant uh, from people who I'd never met and had no other communication with because I think they had realised there was some authenticity because I was the journalist I had said I was. If I'd come out and had only been, I don't know, a, a student trainee had interned once at the Sun or something, there would have been a different reaction. But because I was the journalist I had set myself up as, they all went, fine, hi, you know, and accepted me. You want to know who is an influencer, though? And I, I was, as I was listening to you and hearing what you said about authenticity and, and rigour, um, is... Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. and he's someone who, at, when he was um, the sort of, uh, you know, Brussels correspondent at the Telegraph or whatever it was, and he was sort of, you know, he made a name for himself doing these stories about, like, bendy banana, absurd EU rules, and he, you know, became sort of famous for it. Um, and he's someone who uh, has no integrity. Lying comes as easily as breathing to him. And yet he's an expert at being a crafted version of himself. Mm-hmm. And he uses his opinion pieces, particularly uh, in more recent years at The Telegraph, as an experiment for both uh, you know, the making of his political self and also the sort of refining of his character and his, his public space um, in a way that he doesn't use social media for. Not in the same mm-hmm. way. And thinking about um, how his political journey and his journalistic journey have sort of, you know, been deeply entwined since the 90s. I would say that he was an influencer before that word was even in use in that way. Well, he knows his audience, and that's mm, why he yeah. doesn't go on social media. So he's, 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 Boris has been communicating mm. to Telegraph readers for five years for this moment. Exactly. He's not trying to influence anyone on Twitter. Influence, he's no, because his party. audience it wouldn't work on Twitter because mm. people will deconstruct Boris Johnson mm. using memes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and rightly so, but in the Telegraph, it's <laughs> yeah. war. You know, the mid- Middle England yeah. kind of 65 year old guy who's next week going to decide our Prime Minister. Mm. Boris as authority and authenticity communicate mm. perfectly for him. Well, that's taking us off into a different direction, but uh, <laughs> completely relevant. Um, another question? Yeah, I just wanted to ask in relation to kind of this idea um, that we're all publishers now when we have social media accounts, um, because I think that removes the question <coughs> a lot from some of the reality of what's happening in these online spaces which are owned by very large and very, very powerful companies that were not actually publishers. Twitter is the publisher. Facebook is the publisher. YouTube is the publisher. We play a part in that, but I think that's more to do with kind of blurring of lines between production and consumption in intellectual work. And I was just kind of wondering what the panel thought about that idea. Because I think in a sense, while we can view as social media as quite empowering, it can be quite disempowering because there's not much that we can do to kind of influence the way those algorithms that share content are structured. There's not much that we can do to kind of influence the way that hashtags trends, for example, in the news media and things like that. So it it can be disempowering at the same time as empowering, if that makes sense. I mean, I I agree with you. I think we're monkeys with typewriters. Um, But I, I think that's the nature of of 
production under capitalism uh, to, to make a really annoying vulgar Marxist point like all of us are monkeys with typewriters but some of us are looking at the stars um, <laughs> and and to to illustrate just how out of control we are of the, the platforms uh, that that we use you, you should look no further than Facebook when Facebook decided to pivot to video uh, newsrooms got gutted um, so people that worked in text-based mediums just <laughs> overnight gone um, and there was a huge inflation of video budgets and also like people spending money to push on Facebook to just like, you know, get their video, um, their video content out there. You then had a sort of uh, secondary industry of people who advise on digital communications and videos and they would advise people, this is how you design a video to make it do well on Facebook. You've got to grab them within the first like, you know, half second or whatever it is to like stop them scrolling and then suddenly you've got it. Facebook changes its algorithm again, and so video suddenly gets deprioritized. So one video where you think, oh my God, I am reaching millions and millions of people, suddenly you're like, not even my auntie has seen this. And those video teams get gutted again. And it's, it's not because that content has gotten worse all of a sudden, um, it's because algorithms are able to shape audience desires and how those algorithms are crafted and what those priorities are is subject to little to no democratic oversight. I mean, sorry, guys. Um, you're not wrong, but as far as the law is concerned, you're the publisher. The argument about Facebook and YouTube being no different to the tree that the paper is produced from, which is their argument, will be tested in a number of courts of law, I should think, over the next decade or so, and they might be subject to being broken up if they get any bigger, Mr Zuckerberg. But um, you are a publisher, but you are a very small publisher. You've got a parish magazine and you're dealing with, you know, Fox News Network or something, but you are choosing and editing what to publish from your personal life and of your personal opinions and pictures of your family and what you make public and whether you're making it public to a subscription service like on Facebook or to a closed or private social media account where you choose who gets to see it or whether you're doing the equivalent of writing it on a pub wall and letting everyone have a look at it on a, you know, an open Twitter account or something. So, yes, it's very difficult to have that influence. Technically, you are a publisher. And in theory, if you had that moment of a Damascene moment or somehow, you could, too, be elevated to the level of a Rupert Murdoch if you wrote the right kind of tweet of Facebook or Instagram at the right kind of time, which is why so many trolls keep doing it. Um, you are a publisher. You have the responsibility of a publisher, but you don't have the same consequences <coughs> of the bigger publishers. You don't have the control <coughs> and the power, but you don't have the negative sides as well. So you're right, but I think it's down to the Supreme Court probably to decide which way it's going to go. But it's an, it's an interesting question, which is the way in which... Uh, it, so there are some people that argue that the development of digital communications the way that it is is, is the, you know, is the fourth disruption. It's the new industrial revolution because it's able to achieve something which is, which is quite unique. So one is it sort of perfected the extraction of value from immaterial labour. And two, it does what I think you're getting at, which is you've got... Mark Zuckerberg, who, who effectively owns the, the means of production here, um, but is, is liable for, for very little of the responsibility if things goes wrong. So it's kind of the, the, the worst of uh, monopoly capitalism coupled with the worst of the co-op model of 
of organising something, which is that all the participants, all the users own a stake, you know, own a stake, and are, are responsible for that stake. So you've got a strange. Um, but none of it's permanent. It's all going to change. It's all in flux every day, the yeah. whole thing. So the, the perfect example of that is um, YouTube creators who essentially can make businesses off the content that they publish on YouTube. But actually, the way that they make their money now, because in the last two years, YouTube has panicked madly based on various things, is off the platform. So um, someone that I spoke to who analyzes and is like a consultant for growing YouTube channels who is probably the most knowledgeable person in the world about this basically says it's like building a career on quicksand in that it constantly changes because you're at the whims of big tech what's interesting is that that's changing and Susie says it will be the Supreme Court I think it will be parliamentarians uh, interestingly I was speaking to Damien Collins earlier today who is the head of the digital culture media and sports select committee uh, regulation is coming in the UK, which will transform this idea that we are publishers on a platform to the fact that these big companies are publishers. It's happening in the next 18 months. Um, but that will probably affect things like defamation law yeah. and uh, fake news. It's not going to affect people who are in Ash's situation, who are a victim of a pile-on, and people start using the information that you've made public. Well, this is really interesting, because I think one of the things that we do need to do is as you look at the kind of way that journalism's regulated, for example, and one of the things about you know the the PCC Institute yeah. Code of Conduct, why do have any Institute Code of Conduct? Is that I talk about that you only have harassment, um, you only have harassment via news gathering. So you can harass someone under the Institute Code by the persistent pursuit. There's no harassment by publication and pylon. And actually, I think that's something that we should look at as, a, as an industry. I think we should look at that in the Ipso code, and that's maybe where we could get into those kind of changes at a, at a kind of wider level, or to where we could argue it, and a change that we could make within our industry, and then pan that out to harassment by publication and by pylon in a, in a social media context. I mean, that is happening on social media. So, like, in the last two weeks, we had this issue with uh, a Vox journalist called Carlos Matza, mm. who's an LGBT journalist, uh, got basically piled on by a deeply unpleasant alt-right guy called Stephen Crowder, uh, and, and YouTube, for the first time, took a stance on harassment, and they, they, all, they redrew their harassment guidelines, basically. So... This idea that you can pile on now is uh, basically being sort of made illegal by the terms of service of these platforms, which kind of shows you the power of. But that could be potentially solved by algorithms. Yeah. Because if you can, if you could in the past kind of decide, and in, in terms of harassment in newspapers, the editor could decide, right? So you couldn't have people commenting if you disagreed with the newspaper because there was that line. I am utterly convinced that Twitter and YouTube could sort of have an have a algorithm that could prevent this kind of pattern, that they could look for certain things and change it or get that. They don't. They don't know. I mean, I speak to people inside YouTube. They don't know how their algorithm works at the minute. <laughs> and, this, and, this, and this is the really scary thing: is they have built this thing, and they don't actually understand like how it's how to monster. Yeah, well, basically, I mean, they, they they understand the basic principles behind it, but they don't understand the knock-on, the sort of second tertiary effects yeah. of it. And my worry is that the people making the legislation oh, they're stupid. are the they're Damien all Collins guys, yeah. of the world who are the, you know, 60-somethings who have not even migrated, never mind adopted anything. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and they'll be making laws about a social media which will affect the traditional media as well. How long would it be before someone in Boris Johnson's situation said, oh, I'm having a part, all the front pages are about my problem, so unfair. And we have to stop talking about the thing, about who's going to be the next Prime Minister and what his character is. So... But I think, I think ups and downs. Um, coming back to this question of ownership, sorry, I was flipping through my notes because I, I, a few months ago I attended a talk by a woman called Jodie Dean, who is just just phenomenal. If you haven't you haven't checked out her work, you really should. And what she argues is that um, if you look at the five uh, biggest companies in the world, you've got Alphabet, who own Google, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Samsung, and Apple. And what she argues is that the growth of these digital giants, it's the sort of uh, monopoly era of capitalism on a, on a global scale. And what it's doing is, is fundamentally changing the way states work, the way power works, the way money works. One of the things that she said sort of in passing is that Apple controls more wealth than the Netherlands. And so what you have is the sort of the growth of a um, transnational, souped-up rentier class. And all of us who rely on those services, rely on those platforms... Whether or not we are able to, uh, you know, make them quite personally profitable. So even if we're, you know, Rihanna dropping a new music video and we do very, very well out of Vivo, ultimately we are to greater or lesser extent clients or tenants of those services. And it's a huge shift in global power. What her argument is, is looking at the, at the control of wealth by those five companies in particular, is that we're... Uh, moving towards an era which she describes as, as neo-feudalism. So you sort of look at the sort of uh, organisation of uh, power in the feudal era. But she says that this is going to be uh, completely alongside capitalist structures of wage labour still, but the organisation of power uh, in terms of you know a very, very small uh, ownership class and a mass propertyless surf class is being replicated through digital platforms. I, I thought that was a really interesting uh, Well, if, you, if someone had said to you 15 years ago that you'd be given the amount of words that you've written on Twitter for free... <laughs> what would you have said? I mean, how many words have we written for free? That was our bread and butter. Mm. Well, Carrie Bradshaw got the pound a word on Sex and the City, a dollar a word. But do you know what I mean? Like, we used to get paid by word in, as freelancers, and now we give away everything we do. Yes. Um, yeah. About a little earlier this year, I published something I talked about that not very many people have referred to is that we have this idea that um, the digital has made us maybe more sophisticated in terms of information, that we have the capacity to, to exchange all sorts of things. And the more I looked at it and looked at it historically, is it closer that what you're experiencing is a kind of new word about culture? So it's, it's much closer to maybe an oral culture than this idea of something else. And in a new, if it is, if that's the case, it is a shift also in the relationship to emotion and the idea of somehow coming up with fact because of the instability, as you mentioned, in terms of time, the instability in terms of the relations that you have with others, the instability of the relations of trust because it's a word of culture that doesn't quite make sense in terms of even spatial or temporal dimensions that humans work with. So that's that's the first kind of thing I want you to think about. And the second one I want, want you to think about is, is your role an intermediary? So are you, you were talking about 
um, the idea of YouTubers monetizing, we had a discussion a little bit about influencers, but where does the money come from? Where is it structured? How is it put into, into, into that sort of dimension of what will be the value of having 250,000 followers? In that monetization, where is it coming from? And are you just an intermediary, in a sense, in the relationship of what you're describing? Are you just an intermediary in a restructure of the movement of information? You actually aren't doing anything. You're, do, you're actually working for others. You're kind of, as uh, Shoshana Zuboff describes, you're dispossessed, even as you present. But it, I think the reason why I say that is, is that one of the things that's really clear, a PhD student of mine said it to me, and it's a really good point, that very few produce or write online. <coughs> very few. So the final question I want you to think about is, what are those numbers of responses that you actually do have? And what is the level of that response? Is it equal to what you said to them? Is it truly interpersonal? Or is it a bit like talkback radio? where there's one in a thousand, one in a hundred thousand, one in a million that actually is on the radio program that speaks. So what is it? And is this a totally different notion of what journalism is, is, is constituting? And maybe it's a kind of a breakdown of something to a new word of mouth culture. I mean, I, I, I buy your argument about the word of mouth culture, and your comments remind me of an essay which I, I read, and the name of the essay escapes me, but basically it was about Afro-pessimism, uh, Twitter culture, and basically tried to address the question of, like, why is it that people of colour, and in particular black people, are so good at Twitter? And you only have to look at... You only have to look at... <coughs> like... <coughs> sorry, like, I'm now exposing a great secret, and I'm going to joke and die... <laughs> <coughs> Thanks, wake up the horrible cold. You only have to look at the way in which brands like Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, copy, you know, African-American vernacular to sell their products to, in order to see that there is something about uh, diaspora identity. What you're <coughs> kind of talking about a bit there is, I guess, parasocial <coughs> relationships and that idea of is the closeness that is engendered by social media and the two-way dialogue actually two-way dialogue? I mean, no, it's not. Like, you get you get to a point of scale as an influencer, as a journalist, where you possibly cannot keep up with the number of replies coming into you. And it's partly why, on the kind of influencer celebrity side <coughs> of things, we see advertisers and companies going more towards micro-influencers and smaller people because they can still engender that feeling of closeness um, and that kind of feeds into the word of mouth thing is that we are communicating technically in individual conversations with each other on Twitter but I think <coughs> yeah, I certainly don't read all of my mentions and I don't have that many followers and I don't get that many mentions, so I can't imagine what like someone like that's Ash why does. you're not getting the mentions. Yeah, because yeah. I don't because I don't engage because with you're, that. You're not interacting. If it's if you're set to broadcast yeah. and not to receive as well, then it's like the local newspaper thing. You are missing out. They're, the, the audience are missing out on some kind of value from what they could get from you. I mean, I do engage with some people, but it, it's a, it's a selective thing where the quality of the conversations going on. I have a 
uh, maybe a lower threshold than others for it. <laughs> but I think I, also the question was, you know, how many? I mean, what, what are the numbers? I mean, I, you, you've got 80,000 80, or <coughs> so, Susie. Uh, I mean, you know, how many of those are actually actively, you know, retweeting, commenting, replying? You know, it, well, this is the thing. It's an algorithm, and it's different every day because it depends on whether people are there at that time, whether it's a school holiday, whether it's. Um, the Christmas day, whether the football's on, you know, if you time your, your post to go out at the peak moments when there's going to be most traffic, you'll get more than if you're not there's anything else. But I was interested when you said, are you just an intermediary? Why just? Isn't a journalist, hasn't a journalist always been the intermediary? I mean, in 1702, on the back of the Daily Current, <coughs> the publisher Elizabeth Buckley said, we will give you all the news as it comes in, orally, on the boat, literally, as it comes into London, we'll write it down and let you make your own minds up, and we won't tell you what to think. How is that any different to being, an, you, you know, the added value and where you get your money from is editing, surely. Editing the gossip, that's all it is, organised gossip. So, yeah, I guess the, the reason why we're talking about an intermediary is that's not the intention of the people, the platforms that you're working with. Is that, so you're an intermediary. Bollocks their intention. That's what journalism is. Their journalism is being the intermediary. Their intention is to pick up behavior, not of you, mm. but of the thousands that are dealing with you. So you're an intermediary which, have, which isn't really engaged with what the emotions that you generate are used for. You're, you're saying that when a journalist is operating on social media, those interactions are being harvested by someone for a corporate... For, but harvested by a corporation for their whatever nefarious means. Yes. Yes, you're entirely right. But so the people who, <laughs> the people who made, news, made paper that the newspapers are printed on didn't intend for it to be used for newspaper in one penny sheets that would end up in the gutter uh, down Fleet Street or being the kind of stationsmen. They produced, news, they produced paper to write down the Bible and that's all they wanted ever to be written on paper and they were a bit uncertain about that. And so people use paper for other things. Responsibility. Yeah. So are you taking on the responsibility of the intermediary uh, as an intermediary or the people who control... What well, the difference, in my analogy, is that, obviously, the paper that has been produced by the, the Facebook, the YouTube, whatever, the algorithm, can now take the data from the end customer and use it. And I think, I assume, and I hope that the legislation that will come at some point will make individuals owners of their data. Rather than trying to control what online platforms can do, it will control what they can control. Or is it too late? No, I don't think... they have ownership, is it already gone? No, because I mean, I've, I've looked at what kind of information Facebook's got on me, for example, and they think I'm a bloke. And they think I'm, I'm interested in jazz. And they, they think a whole bunch of stuff that's just bollocks. And I wasn't even trying to lie. That's what they thought they were doing when I thought I was being honest with them. So <coughs> the data they hold has a certain value to them, but it's, some of it is imaginary. And, you know, you can't... If journalists are using and innovating and finding <coughs> the latest tech to use to get their message across, that, you know, that is something which I th I'm sure there will be some rules imposed at some point, and they will work, to make people owners of their own data so that it can't be taken and harvested and used by advertisers in the ways that it is at the moment. Remember, Facebook was 2004, Twitter was 2006. They are barely teenagers. 
they have not evolved, we have not evolved to deal with it, our systems haven't evolved to deal with it, our laws haven't evolved to deal with it, it's all going to come, it's all very early days. Yeah, but think but of television in 1958 and television in 1968, think of that as the same length of time, we're 68 to 78, and that's massive in terms of the transformation of media, in terms of the transformation of culture, so we're already in a situation of a 15 year transformation that's hard to reinvent in terms of this I also think that the um, the politics of the ownership of data is different from the ownership of other things, like the ownership of you know paper or the sort of physical infrastructure of newspaper distribution. And you've you've already seen in recent years political parties adjusting to that and um, embracing it. So. Uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy, for instance, has got very interesting data policy for how it gathers and captures the data of people who aren't really members in any participative sense of party democracy, but whose um, data is utilised and controlled in quite opaque means by uh, the sort of you know high command of the Five Star Movement. It's got more of a company structure than it does a traditional uh, political party structure. And interestingly, the Brexit party has employed a very similar company structure. And it's taken an approach where rather than trying to uh, mobilise a party membership in any traditional sense in which you've got a grassroots, you've got some sort of interface which um, generates ideas and policy demands and blah, 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 and synthesises them into a party policy, what you have is social media utilised to mobilise people on an on-the-ground level and you've also got the data that's being uh, generated by interaction with Brexit Party, social media, in order to feed into strategy and targeting and all the rest of it. This is a sort of copy from the Five Star Movement. I think that tactics like that are going to become more and more important when it comes to thinking about how politics plays out um, over the next decade or so. And that's what I mean by, yes, these things are, are uh, the sum total of... Uh, human desires and tendencies but I don't think we should underestimate how it will change our lived experience, our social experience, our political experience because I do think that the ownership of data is something which is new in this way at this scale. And I think the thing is about the Brexit party as well, it really feeds into what you were saying David, is that they (coughs) have no policies other than Brexit and it's all an interplay of emotion so it's to give you something that you can respond to and share, which takes away of the idea of if of um, someone being a public or someone being that you in an electoral time, someone being an electorate. And called, you know, if we take your micro public analogy to the micro electorate, it takes them away and makes them a fanboy. So here's, the, here's Nigel Farage in the pub having his pint and waving his sad little England flag. Hooray, emotional, great. I go to the pub and I wave my sad little England flag. And it just all becomes into this wrap of emotion. It, it doesn't even mean anything. It doesn't communicate in any meaningful way. There were no policies, none at all. And they managed to get that amount of the vote. And in some ways that was learned from David Cameron. Because David Cameron's 2010 general election campaign was the campaign of soundbite, where they actually used a high school, the musical, what was it, um, we're all in this together. Mm. And it was just this mantra of nonsense that meant nothing, that yeah, we are are all in it together, I'm going to like that 
thing. So if we take it to the next kind of extreme, if we're blurring the lines between journalist, influencer, or brand, and maybe in Boris's case, we should and politi politician to the end of it, with audience, we're blurring the lines between optimizers, fanboys, electrics, readers, all of these different notions that have all of these different cultural histories <coughs> and all of this different research in our field associated to it and trying to figure out where this is all going next. I think that you've got a point is that is a Pandora's box is the lid out on this and it's so globalised and so it's so cross-nation. That's like, how on earth can Britain on its own, if Damien, if Damien Collins does decide to make this change, will it make any difference? But I do think Susie's point is that we should try. That we should try to kind of make some changes here that at a small level that might make some positive changes moving forward. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the idea of legislation and regulation is that because, precisely because these platforms are cross-border and because they operate in like hundreds of different jurisdictions and because they want to make as much money as possible, they want as least as little friction as possible. So what will happen is we will get terrible regulation, it will be piecemeal regulation, whether it's data ownership or harassment or things like that, and different countries will focus on different stuff. And I think what might happen is that the platforms will implement like the lowest common denominator version of each of those issues on the legislative front, so that you end up hopefully with kind of like a really good protection. Because you will have like the most. This is thinking <coughs> at my most like tech optimist. I'm not sure that. Bless you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Depends on what time of the day and what side of the bed I wake up. <laughs> but um, you know, in an ideal world, we have smart regulation, which we won't have, as Susie says, because all the people are old. But we have Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, who is actually someone who is a tech digital literate person who is a legislator now and more of but them... But who keeps talking bollocks? Well, yeah, but, but they keep coming down the pipeline, so hopefully more and more people will become smartened up to this stuff and then we will get good legislation and it will be eventually they will all get their act together in an ideal world and I think what will happen, to probably be pessimistic about it, just to yeah. um, mirror you for a moment, I'll put the negative version of you is that when legislation comes in somewhere, in the first place that it happens, Google or Apple or Samsung or whoever will say, "Well, we'll just go and pay our taxes over here." Well, that happens already. Uh, and if actually, if you do it like this, we'll pay some of our taxes here, and they will be able to. And it's exactly the power that Ash was talking about. They will be able to influence the legislation that that was going to influence them. Because they've got the money. How can you not if you're that powerful? I mean, I think the sort of. Um underlying like baseline to this conversation is is what's going to happen next going to be able to um take us back to something which resembles before or will it be fundamentally new will that new thing be better or will it be worse and i think the question of better or worse is, is fundamentally a political question it's fundamentally a question of how we we um organize ourselves and our desires through political vehicles and i think as so i really like shoshana zuboff's work i think surveillance capitalism like phenomenal book and it's one of those things which i always bang around and feel like you should read this but I think something which is neglected in surveillance capitalism is the capacity to um, utilise the disruption of technology in such a way and some of the negative consequences of it for instance uh, the sort of uh, weakening of national governments the sort of parcelisation of sovereignty the elements of polarisation for um, what 
I think of as politically progressive aims, and these are things which are which are being engaged with by other writers mm-hmm. with more depth, um, though I think perhaps with uh, less depth of knowledge of technology itself than what Zubov has. Two writers I would say that do that are Paul Mason, particularly in Clear Bright Future. He looks uh, at how technology presents us with a vision of the future, um, and a, a radical, uh, what he calls a radical humanist future, a future which um, is premised on the collective ownership of the means of production, which cannot and does not and must not resemble the sort of command and control economies of um, the 20th century. It's an utter rejection of Stalinism. Uh, my colleague, Aaron Bastani, although I do think there are some significant flaws in his book, which if we had more time, I would hammer, uh, I would hammer the audience about. Um, but one of the things that his book does do is look at the relationship that technology and politics has always had and envisions a utopian future through this, dis- this you know, fourth disruption um, in which the connection between human labour and economic productive activity is fundamentally decoupled because of not just the automation of labour, which has happened before, but the automation of cognitive function. Um, I think that he sort of neglects some of these questions about power and ownership, which is how strong they are, uh, that we've been discussing here. I also think that one of the things that he leaves out is the uneven development of technology. But I think these are things which are worth thinking about because it affects journalism too. Um, Google is looking at automating newsrooms. And you think about the... Um, the uh, the myth of the reporter, and I'm, when I say myth, I don't mean something which isn't real. I'm talking about something which we, we valorise and we look, look up to. The, the, the really emotionally arresting picture which you would be able to paint of your own experiences and the way in which you projected your own future, that's something which is going to change radically in the next 20 years. And we can think about how that's a good thing or a bad thing. What I don't think we can debate is whether or not it's going to happen. And that's exactly what we have to do in higher education, which is Ian's laughing because we have debated this long and hard, is how do we um, provide students with the, the kind of skills that will set them up for the next 25, 30, 35 years, probably they'll retire when they're 80, kind of what, what are the skills that they need to survive? And we talk a lot about skill. So the turning on a video camera and the learning of the inverted pyramid structure and the, um, you know, kind of, should it be impartial or should we allow them to put their personality into their journalism or can we do both? And I think all of those things that we do have to create a set set of skills that will make them be able to take their first step out into industry. So furnish them for what's actually happening in the next two years so they can get their foot in the door. But actually, the longer and more influ- interesting conversation for me is how do we allow enable that to shape journalism in the future? How do we foster them with a sense of civic responsibility and social responsibility? And if they want to learn the skill bit by writing about dogs going to the cafe, I'm going to shape dogs going to the cafe. All right, loads of local newspapers do dogs in cafes. Do you know what I mean? If that's your passion, learn the video. But what are you going to do next with that? Now that you know how to attract an audience of dog lovers, how are you going to turn that into a different kind of audience and move that narrative forward? Dog loves communism. Yeah, dog loves <laughs> communism in T-shirts. And on that note, <laughs> I think we better end. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University and BBC Northeastern Cumbria. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>